0: Howdy folks, Jared here, getting ready to kick off our fifth episode of Concessions, where Dan and I chit chat very symmetrically about Wes Anderson's Asteroid City. This episode is a bit of an anomaly in that we recorded it just a couple of days after recording our Babylon episode, so you may hear us lightly referencing our previous conversation about Babylon that you haven't heard yet. Uh, nothing major, substantial, just some stray references here and there. Uh, not a big deal. But we're releasing this one first since Asteroid City just had its home release. And so a lot more folks are talking about it online, and we wanted to jump in the pile. So, as a result of recording these episodes in such quick succession, We skip a lot of the usual banter about all the various things we watched that week, and in this one, we really head straight into talking about Asteroid City itself. But not to worry, we'll be back to our regularly scheduled bullshit next week, where we go full bore into Damien Chazelle's Babylon in all of its debauchery and excess. If you want to check out that movie before coming back here to hear our thoughts next week, it is out there available to watch and you can figure out where yourself because I'm not out here trying to cross any picket lines. As of the time of this recording, the WGA and the SAG-AFTRA strikes are still ongoing as the writers and actors who entertain us and enrich our lives are out there fighting for fair wages, fair residuals for uh, a guarantee not to be replaced by AI, uh, among other reasonable requests that the studios and producers are able to provide without heading to the poorhouses. If you like the podcast, please give us a rating and a follow on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever else you happen to be listening to this. You can find me harassing the big studios, uh, social media workers about the strike over on threads at Jared Concessions. Dan is on X or twitter or i guess it's x now uh he's at dan concedes all right i think i said everything i wanted to say so for now please enjoy dan and i's thoughts on wes anderson's asteroid city
1: Two concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And I'm doing this podcast nude. Do you want to see it? Uh
0: th- did I did I say yes? I was, no. So I, was, I was thinking yes. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. uh, well, another day, another dollar. Uh, or actually uh another day and another podcast. This is uh this is gonna this is gonna be a first for us because we've been on a really really steady cadence of once a week every night we get together and we discuss a movie that we both watched that week and uh wait you mean once a night every week yeah excuse me once a week (laughs) once a week there's a night where we get together and we uh, discuss a movie that we both watched that week and it's always preordained we've been taking turns selecting them this week we recorded an episode about damien chazelle's babylon and we had such a good time with it that we're back a couple days later, talking about a movie that we both just happened to see this week. Well, we didn't just happen to see it; it came out in wide release in movie theaters this week, and we both saw it. And we thought, "What the hell?" We were texting enough about it already. We might as well just jump on the old podcast recording software and do the thing properly.
1: Yeah, you are. Uh, you're you're seeing some off the cuff. Riffing improving podcasting right here. This is street podcasting kids. We barely got an outline here. Who knows what we're about to get into? Oh my gosh. And didn- one one thing is guaranteed, we're gonna get too into it. Almost certainly. We have very loose uh parameters around what we want to talk about, which will probably and The idea is supposed to be, you know, sort of like a bonus episode, kind of an off-the-cup episode, but likely I'm I wouldn't be surprised if this winds up just being one of the longest ones. Yeah, since we have very little structure and actually
0: some of the topics that we do know we're going to talk about, I can pontificate on
1: at length. You might have to be the one that reels me in on some of them. Okay. Without further uh, ado, Dan, what did you watch this week? Thank you, Dan. I don't know why. Uh, you, whoa, I whoa, 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 whoa! Before we talk about <laughs> film or, or anything like that, Dan, what are you drinking? Oh, oh boy, uh, a good. Uh, uh, unfortunately, a visual gag that is lost in this medium. Um, so I was pouring myself. Usually, I like to pour myself one drink, so I don't have to go up and down and you know leave the microphone. Um, and I'm still at my parents' place and I was going through their cabinets and I I wanted to make myself, I made myself a little gin tonic. Um, and they only had like, you know, your normal, uh, glasses that you fill with water and drink with dinner, like one of those little 12 ounce glasses. Like that's not going to quench a man's thirst. Not, not in the, down the podcasting minds, this throat needs to be quenched. Um, so then I was looking around for something bigger than 12 ounces. And the only, the next step is this wonderful Hokey like souvenir cup that my my parents, the sweet people that they are. Um, it's a souvenir cup from the baseball games that they used to go to of mine like back when I played ball. Um, so it's a logoed giant plastic. you can hear the the ice right there. See I'd never lie to you people. this is real physical right here. Uh, it's probably a good give or take at least 48 ounces of gin and tonic in my hand.
0: Wow. And how much of how many of those ounces uh, are gin?
1: Oh, who's to say? Uh, <laughs> I oh, know wait. it was, just, it was a, a, uh, a couple seconds of firm glugging coming out of a bottle of tangerine. Oh, my goodness. So, this might be a, a rather lengthy episode. <laughs> <laughs> if by the end you start hearing me talk about it's uh, the Wes Anderson so symmetrical, we're, we're gonna we're gonna talk about symmetry far earlier than that. um
0: i'm drinking a one pint 3.2 full ounces uh stone delicious ipa it's uh it's an ipa that lives up to its name it comes in a yellow can not quite a tall boy because it's not Mm. quite tall boy proportions but it's gluten reduced it's vegan and it comes from my homeland of north county san diego california and uh this is my favorite stone ipa i would say the the kind of the pineapple citrus one that they do would be a close second. I'm not a fan of some of their hardier brews, like the the Arrogant Bastard Ale, but I do like their IPAs. By Stone Brewing standards, the IPA is sort of their light beer. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you've never uh, had the had the the honor and privilege to uh, partake in Stone brews, uh, they uh, they go
1: heavy and hard. Yeah, I've got a there's a running joke that one of my friends says about stone that it's stuck in my head. So I have trouble not like saying it out loud on accident. Or like the arrogant bastard or they they and they typically have like very long, verbose names. So whenever you would get a stone around him, he's like, Oh yeah, do they uh untap do they still have like the stupid fucking moron brew? <laughs> they do have long and verbose names. They're like the <laughs> the emo core band of breweries. <laughs> I mean they were uh, they were cool before stone bre- or before craft breweries were cool. They were I'll die on that hill st- besides maybe the Sam Adams
0: company, Stone really did uh just kind of blow up the kind of independent craft brew scene. And, you know, really? I'm I'm, I'm out, of, out of I'm of an age where I'm not old enough to, like, remember Sam Adams not being a, you know, a global brand a name. Yeah. But uh, Stone is kind of one that grew up with me. And uh, I, I drank, you know, before before I was of drinking age because of it's relative proximity to where I went to high school. And, yeah, I've always been a big fan. And I think this is the best of the best. The Stone Delicious. It's easy to remember because it is the delicious one.
1: Well, welcome to uh, Concessions podcast on beer. Uh, Hope you guys had a fun time and we'll see you later. Until next time, friends.
0: (laughs) Today, we're going to talk about Asteroid City. It is written and directed by Wes Anderson, who shares a story credit with some Coppola or other, and it stars another one uh, Uh, along with Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hanks, Jeffrey Wright, Tilda Swinton, Brian Cranston, Edward Norton, Adrian Brody, (laughs) Liev Schreiber, Hope Davis, Stephen Park, Rupert Friend. Maya Hawke, Sophia Lillis, Matt Dillon, Steve Carell, Hong Chao, Willem Dafoe, Margot Robbie, Tony Revolori, Jeff Goldblum as the alien and introducing Jake Ryan. That yeah, that's most of the cast. Yeah, uh, I, I I missed a few because I know that there's a a quick like a kind of a blinking you miss her, Rita Wilson in here. Oh, is it? Just there? kind of pack package deal with uh, with Mr. Hanks, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, a few other folks who uh, you know, have speaking roles. I think that I
1: listed most of the a-listers yeah just scratching the surface somehow like like you know wes anderson movies are famous for their stacked cast but oh my god this one
0: yeah i mean i remember having a similar reaction to seeing the cast of the french dispatch right you know the trailers are cut for like maximum impact on the reveals because of course they are but this one i think is like is a new level like i if the goal is to just stack them higher and higher and higher with each feature film, I cannot wait to find out what he has in store for us in 2025.
1: <laughs> it's, it's just going to be the, the, anyone with a SAG card is going to be uh, in the next movie. Uh, if they're not on strike, they, <laughs> they, they may be going on strike tomorrow as of, uh, as of the, the date of this recording. Wait, hold on. Hold on a second. But I thought Hollywood was like a perfect pure meritocracy we only the best rise to the top.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, the be- the best Coppola's rise to the top, <laughs> even if they change their name to kind of avoid these, uh, these barbs being thrown at them. And I, okay, I want to, I want to kind of get this out of the way because I've been already been a fucking dick. Jason Schwartzman is a fantastic actor. Don't even get me started about <laughs> Nicolas Cage. I'm not trying to, <laughs> I'm not trying to like you know, denigrate their, we are not doing Coppola
1: slander. We're more saying uh, nepotism in
0: general. Not at all. Uh, Yeah. Or excuse me. Exactly. And I just, uh, I'm not familiar with any of uh, like Roman Coppola's work outside of just kind of being like a, a story guy with Wes Anderson Mm -hmm. Um, and like doing some music videos and kind of working second unit on like his dad's shoots and that sort of thing. Oh, um, if we were
1: talking about that earlier, but um, that uh, the the, the kind of like response to Elvis movie, uh, Priscilla Presley is going to be done by Sofia Coppola. Yeah, who
0: you know, obviously a, a like a monumental filmmaker as well, right? Um, but I always wondered what Wes Anderson's connection is with them because he seems to have like a you know a very deep connection with the Coppolas, and uh, I, I'm not sure if that like predates his success as a filmmaker or not. I'm
1: sure I could just Google my way towards that. Yeah, maybe at least even from as we speak. Bottle rocket, like his first film, like there was Neria Coppola to be seen. I mean, the Wilson brothers were in it, but they were also no one at the time. Yeah, I mean, I assume it's just that you know his first like movie or two were. Like, you know, uh,
0: got enough attention that he just made friends with with these folks, as you do, as you when you're uh, kind of new on this the scene and making major motion pictures. But I don't know, because I there there is like the Coppola connection I would see with Bottle Rocket is that James Caan is in it. Oh, true. Um, But, you know, he's not like a member of the family. It's just like very much associate him mm-hmm. with with Francis Ford.
1: Right, right. But okay, yeah, we, uh, we're talking Wes Anderson. Um, yeah. As a, a, a resident uh, uh, twee millennial over here, I have a deep and loving history with Wes Anderson. It was actually very late when I learned about him. It, actually, a fun anecdote. Um, the first Wes Anderson movie I watched was Moonrise Kingdom. And uh, I forget how I even stumbled upon it. Like, it was kind of my first steps outside of like, oh, I want to see stuff that's like, you know, a little off the beaten path from just like standard Hollywood fare. I think I like uh, pirated it in college or something like that. And because I was just like, so not a part of just, you know, the film community at all, I thought I had stumbled into some like unknown gem <laughs> or something like that. And I remember being in one of my like, I think it was like sophomore year. So something, just in one of my classes and someone brought up Wes Anderson in, like, some pertinent way to answering a question. After the class, I was like, wait, you know who Wes Anderson is too?" And, yeah, it was... Wow. It was almost nothing out of a Wes Anderson movie where two kids in a humanities department in a liberal arts college are both gushing over Wes Anderson, like they're the only two who knows who he is. Um, but needless to say, so I quickly ran through, like, most of his stuff at that time, or I think Moonrise Kingdom was the newest one at the time. And, honestly, his earlier stuff is kind of a they're all kind of mashed together for me, like uh, especially uh, Rushmore and Tenenbaums. I kind of like can't untangle them in my mind. They're almost like the same movie to me. Um, and Zisu, I barely remember either. Um, really, the big ones is like Moonrise Kingdom. I still deeply love. Um, and uh, uh, oh, Grand Budapest might just be one of my favorite movies, period. That thing is a miracle. Um, and then, yeah, his last two have been incredible. Um I'm okay with Darjeeling limited. I might have to go back and watch that again. But um, yeah, as any, as you can tell, as any proper card carrying insufferable millennial, I have a loose ranking of Wes Anderson movies in my head. Oh, and then his top motion ones, of course. I mean, yeah. Uh, Fantastic Mixer Fox might be the most like autumn movie ever mm, made. It's so yeah. cozy.
0: Oh, I, I love, love it. it. It looks like uh, a, a bag of Reese's
1: Pieces. Uh, <laughs> it does. Uh I just want to like put a blankie on and sip some tea and maybe maybe get a nice little wool hat. Uh yeah. George Clooney is a fox. I'd be a furry if uh, foxes were George Clooney. <laughs> um yeah. Fantastic Mr. Fox. I
0: mm, you know, we'll 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 obviously get into it, but uh, right now, Fantastic Mr. Fox and Asteroid City are battling it out for my favorite Wes Anderson movie.
1: Oh, wow. Um, so you really liked Asteroid City. I really like right. Asteroid but, City. Um, actually, maybe we need some context. How do you yeah. feel about Mr. Anderson? Yeah. Oeuvre. Let's take, let's take if a, anyone has something described as an oeuvre, it's Wes Anderson.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, like his movies defy description, right? Like he is a genre unto himself. Mm-hmm. Um, which, uh, for, for better or worse, uh, I got to say, for me, it's, it's mostly worse. Um, let's see. I, I know that the first Wes Anderson movie that I saw was The Royal Tenenbaums. A girl that I liked in high school, you know, learned that I, you know, really liked movies. <laughs> and this was like maybe two years after it came out. So she had the DVD and um, we watched it. And I like, you know, pretended to be into it for her sake. Or for my sake, but because of her. (laughs) And, uh, uh, you know, I didn't really care for it. And, I, I, you know, I was, like, 15 or 16. And I have, like, no idea why. But I I definitely then, like, we were, like, really close when uh, Life Aquatic came out and saw that in the movie theater. And I think I've seen, with the exception of The French Dispatch and Moonrise Kingdom, I've seen all of his movies, like, basically day one in the movie theater, at least like the first weekend in the movie theater. And I have like, I've ranged from like, meh, like forgettable, like Isle of Dogs to just outright could not stand at all. Like the Darjeeling limited is probably like my least favorite. Um, And then everything in between, but it's mostly kind of geared towards like actually disliking, not even just like being ambivalent. Um, I've, Mostly just found his aesthetic to be off-putting visually, but more so the way that he directs his actors Mm. and the way that his actors sort of become these cold kind of soulless puppets in his hands, which, uh, you know, is intentional. And I'm prepared to rant about that at length in a moment here. But I've always just found that, like, that intentional coldness in his characters to like it makes them come across just as bad people. And uh I I have trouble like really connecting, and it it would be okay if I uh just had a particular fondness for the aesthetics, but I, I usually don't, with the exception of the stop motion stuff. Like I I liked Isle of Dogs, I loved Fantastic Mr. Fox. But now I don't know. I think I start. I need to start kind of working my way through his filmography again because I liked Asteroid City so much more than I thought I was going to.
1: Yeah, that's funny that you say that because like I I feel like with every new Wes Anderson movie that comes out, the commentary is always like Wes Anderson is out. Wes Anderson himself. Yeah, this isn't. If you don't like Wes Anderson, this isn't going to be the one that changes your
0: mind. I've seen that said so many times about this movie and. I mean, I went into it wanting to like it, but fully expecting not to. And, you know, if you do that with any movie that like entering into it, that kind of baggage, it really lessens the odds that you're going to like it. Right. And I really liked it.
1: Yeah, because like I would say it is almost just like a straight upward trajectory of how Wes Anderson, Wes Anderson gets every movie. Um, It just gets more meticulously designed, more kind of arm's length sort of acting more like dollhouse looking more tightly controlled uh, more like i don't know like i it, it's a it's a what's the word i'm looking for it's kind of a condescending term but kind of the plot gets cuter and cuter if that mm-hmm. makes sense yeah 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 this movie probably had the cutest plot outside of maybe moonrise kingdom what was interesting about at least with my experience uh, just kind of diving into to our personal experience with watching the film a week ago i almost i almost hated this movie for a lot like there was the opening like the opening bits when you're you're kind of like it's like your favorite author when you just like open the pages and it's like their style and you're like oh this is so good this is this shit i like um and that's like when the film opened and you're like getting situated in the world and you study, you're like, Oh hell yeah. It's a Wes Anderson movie. Like we're about to Wes out for a little while. And then there's kind of like this middle, it, it like keeps going. and It's like, it's fine enough. And somewhere around like the middle of the movie, like I, I started personally feeling like, all right. Like, I mean, this is all cool and all, but like, I don't, I don't really know what we're doing here anymore. We're kind of just, you know, we're just doing Wes Anderson stuff and characters are being a little distant and, unemotional. It's not really, like, what's the point? What's going on? Like, it doesn't make sense. And then there's a, uh, not to spoil too much, there is a scene towards the end where it pretty much, like, straight tells you, it's like, hey, are you feeling, like, a little uh, unmoored and kind of lost in this movie? Uh, Good. Um, That was by design. And now here's this big old catharsis that we're just going to slap you in the face with, and now you're going to be left sobbing. I'm like, damn it, Wes. How'd you know? Yeah, and...
0: I mean that is that is the standout scene, and and I think that the reason that I like this movie so much is pretty clear, and that the wraparound story really does enhance it. and almost like directly addresses that cold style and sort of subverts it in a way, or tempers it when like the black and white scenes of the actual creation of Asteroid City, the play, definitely have you know their one step removed from kind of his intentional artifice and uh, they, they kind of just the way it, it, it frames the story story asteroid city itself it, I, I wouldn't say it even like enhances the like the play within a play like the actual asteroid city color scenes but it uh it informs them in a way that uh explains that artifice that coldness that distance mm-hmm. um and kind of yeah like reframes it in a way that i'm okay with it and it all yeah. happens in that scene that you're describing.
1: Yeah, it's like, well, to make it clear, um, this movie is, wait, okay, I need to get the orders right. Uh, you are watching a television special about the, ma- or the kind of like a documentary about the history of the making of this play called Asteroid City. And you're also, while you're watching the making of Asteroid City, you're watching Asteroid City. Is that correct? Is that how the layers work?
0: Uh, I, I... My interpretation is that you are watching a televised version of the play that is being narrated by kind of Brian Cranston, who's got this, like, I don't know, almost this like Walter Cronkite thing going on. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing, yeah, you're like, yeah, you're seeing snippets of like kind of behind the scenes, like the creation of the play or like a dramatization maybe of the creation of the play. But you're also seeing the play itself. But but what you're actually seeing, like when you go to the color scenes, they certainly do not appear to be the televised version of a 1955 play. They appear to be a 2023 movie with all the technological marvel that comes with it. Um, so I don't know. I I think it's it's a little bit ambiguous. But the point is, you get to see the creation of this retro future, or excuse me, this at the time, just futuristic, you know, the science fiction play that's that's being written by sort of a Tennessee Williams-esque kind of Southern gentleman with some edge to him playwright played by Edward Norton, who like, first of all, uh, the only person to cast in that role. Um, (laughs) uh, And uh, you're seeing it, you know, you're seeing kind of the trials and tribulations of the cast themselves and their personal baggage and the way that they are interacting with the director played by Adrian Brody. But then 75% 75% of the movie is just the finished product of Asteroid City, the play written by Edward Norton's character. It's presented in this like weird, you know, uh, it's not quite presented as a play. It's not quite presented as a movie. It's it's presented as some hybrid between the two. Like for instance, like one of one of the best visual gags in the movie is that it begins with Edward Norton just reading aloud the stage direction from the beginning of of the play and anyone who's never read like a you know contemporary play it usually starts with about a page of just describing the sets and describing the way that the play is going to be presented technically and it's always written in a you know assuming that you're going to be doing it like with a proscenium arch so you're basically seeing like a a mid a mid shot of of everything So they'll describe the scenery in a way that makes sense if you're in a theater. So like the way it's described is like you see a freeway or like a highway disappear into the horizon, which if you're just looking at a stage, that makes sense. But in the movie, you're seeing it in three dimensions as a movie. So you literally see just like a small section of highway that just stops midair. And the play is kind of where the play, the movie is kind of like full of those little jokes where it's like. There's just a uh, an incongruence between, like, you're watching a play, but you're watching it as a movie, and that doesn't make sense. So it fits mm. perfectly into, like, Wes Anderson's, like, dollhouse aesthetic. Anyway, I don't know where I was going with that, but that that's sort of the
1: framing device of the movie. Um, yeah, and it's, and like you said, like, us struggling to very clearly parse it out, I think is sort of the point. It's like the playfulness of this movie where they kind of all, they all overlap at some points. They inform each other. They build on top of each other. They expose the other earth in way. They draw attention to one another. Like, it's all very uh, symbiotic. Instead of like, you know, there's a lot of these sort of epistolary styles tales where um, I'm thinking of like, uh, like Grand Budapest, actually, another one of his movies, where it's just like, it's more of like Russian dolls, than anything like you just clearly see the layers and you kind of go up and down and back and forth between them uh, where this is like they're just like almost inseparably mashed. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I would love to know like kind of what
0: his theater background is or like how much he's participated in it or like kind of what his level of just enjoying live theater is because like it, this seems like it's been written and directed with some like real love for the form.
1: Yeah, and it's um, very strange uh, to think about him loving, and I agree, it seems like he really loves the form, but, like, knowing Wes Anderson's movies, you would think he would hate theater, like, or the way he directs actors, like, theater would be, like, the most antithetical style for how he wants to work with actors, because... Uh, I mean, you have much more of a theater background than me, so I'll let you uh, really kick into this. But like, you know, theater is much less controlled in my mind than uh, film set. I mean, hell, <laughs> like, I went yeah. from uh, just straight up like, you know, mostly con- or controlling actors in very subdued ways to so just like, ah, fuck it, I don't even need the actors. I'm just using stop motion now where I can control everything. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I'll, I'll I'll use this to kind of give the history lesson behind that then.
0: And uh, and you're right. I mean, like conventional wisdom would say that directing theater you're putting far more trust in your actors like they you know if you're if you're directing something like let's say it's on broadway and it's running it, who who knows it could run for a year or more uh you know seven eight shows a week in perpetuity and you know you as the director you maybe stopped being involved in it uh like you know the night before opening night you stopped giving notes and and whatnot you just kind of trust that the actors are gonna live truthfully they're going to approximate what you talked about as far as intentions. And, you know, obviously like the blocking is pretty set because like the technical pieces rely on the blocking and all that, but you really do are just kind of letting your actors loose. And that's obviously, that's been the case for a long, long time. Um, Since before there really were theater directors where Mm -hmm. you usually would be the playwright who is also like playing the lead role. And Mm -hmm. is basically the de facto director because a, a different, job role doesn't even exist right so like shakespeare probably the most famous example like he Mm -hmm. was you know the lead actor and playwright and as a result he kind of directed it and he even like wrote in hamlet about his directing style but in the right around the turn of the 20th century uh there was an actor director sculptor scenic designer turned in his in his later years really just like a theater a uh, theoretician. Like he basically just became like a person who wrote about the theater. Uh, so his name was Edward Gordon Craig. He is an Englishman. And he, in like his middle age, basically decided that actors in all of their human chaos, their personalities, their, their minds, their behavior was just antithetical to art. He said, uh, he basically said that that art is the exact opposite of chaos. I think he used Ooh. a different word. Oh, he okay. He said he said that pandemonium is the exact opposite of art. That art needs to be singularly intentional. It uh, needs to all the brushstrokes need to matter, and that uh, the whole role of an actor flies in the face of that thesis. So, that is the most British thing I have ever heard. So he he uh, basically. Argued that there should be a singular, what he called artist of the theater, who is the creative force who makes all of the decisions. Like they're the boss. And that mm-hmm. is, you know, what became modern directors. As he kind of got further and further down into this, I don't know, this, this <laughs> grotesque point of view that he had, <laughs> he went so far as to. Fantasize about what he referred to as an Uber Marionette or uh, a super puppet, <laughs> but Uber Marionette sounds way cooler. If there was just a automaton or a you know a a doll that the director could mold exactly how he wanted it to, and it would do exactly what he told it to do, and never did anything differently there's some sort of puppet that just didn't exist technologically yet in you know 1905 oh. that theater could be perfect and uh, he, but he he was also part of this whole anti illusionism movement so like illusionism in art is basically like as technological advances made artistic mediums kind of more and more malleable you could kind of start to blur the line between reality and art Right. That like they like you would create an illusion that what you're looking at is real life. So he was he was all about like not doing that. Like so all of his sets were very flat. They're very dollhousey. And uh, he uh, yeah, he he basically, you know, unfortunately, he was ahead of his time because this whole all these ideas like by the time, you know, like the 80s, 90s rolled around were a reality. Right. Like right. actually sculpting in two dimensions with, you know, uber marionettes were the creative force is actually controlling all of them, man, this guy would have just lost his fucking mind over Toy Story. <laughs> like, it would have been the best thing ever if, if if Edward Gordon Craig had lived to be, you know, 140 years old. <laughs> he would have loved Toy Story. But anyway, that's all to say, to me, Wes Anderson has always embodied this in modern <laughs> times, where uh, not only is he purposefully breaking down the illusion of reality in filmmaking and, and pointing at all the strings and using basically using a lot of two-dimensional objects using a lot of unnatural symmetry he's kind of embodying that he's and uh the actor thing also seems to go along with that same that same Creed where uh he he's they his actors are willing to just remove their ego remove their chaos and just kind of recite his poetry and uh, it's always been a big turnoff for me. But in this movie, it seems like he's
1: actually addressing it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially in the contrast. I started paying more attention to that between the color scenes and the black and white scenes where it's like black and white scenes are acted entirely differently. And much yeah. more in a and like a, well, I would say it's like a a naturalistic style that you're used to seeing in a lot of uh, movies these days where the actors are emoting more, they're less you can tell they're less like, you know, uber marionettes. So then it makes us that when you bounce back to the uh, the the color version of the story and they're back to like, you know, your standard Wes Anderson characters, it kind of it 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 kind of shows what's behind that a little better. Yeah, absolutely. And the
0: characters embody it as well. So like Conrad, the the playwright who's played by Edward Norton, who again is like this kind of 1950s new American realism, uh, kind of Tennessee Williams type, even though to my knowledge, Tennessee Williams never wrote a sci-fi play, but mm. he, he's still clearly meant to be Tennessee Williams. Uh, he he sort of embodies more of this like Stanislavski school, like let the actors explore, let the actors imbue their characters with themselves, let the actors kind of draw on their own experience, let the actors actually inform the direction of the play. Like, uh, it happens, like, very specifically with the uh, uh, Jason Schwartzman's character, uh, the actor choosing to burn himself on the stove. Mm. Or, or, or uh, and coming up with his own reason, why, like, why he did it, and the playwright not even not even able to, like, understand why he did it as well as the actor does um i, well, I thought even that was in the like,
1: story too they're talking about why uh because scarlett johansson's character is an actress and they're trying to figure out why she's doing things and she's like eh, i don't know yeah yeah like when like like why does her character kill herself and right like, like or, all that stuff and and the other scene i was thinking about or at least i thought you were going to this scene that i thought really like it, it brought into full relief for me where uh edward norton's character the tennessee williams-esque character um he kind of can't write the ending right. so he has the actors so, he has the actors workshop it like old school by like yeah they're, yeah games. they're just like it's just full free form uh, almost improv yeah yeah he,
0: he goes to like his theater teacher friend played by willem defoe and just has his class uh just kind of yeah improv it out play kind of silly childish theater games like us theater people love and uh if you i mean and it literally is just the whole cast like at some point with uh, off screen, he just decided to cast the entire class.
1: Oh my god! Wait, I, I feel so awful. What what's the line that they kept repeating over? It's like you can't oh. wake up if, if you're never if you're not asleep. Yeah, it's something like that. And I I, I couldn't I, I never quite grasped what was going on there. Um shit! If I get the exact right words, because no, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, keep going, but I'll I'll figure it out. Yeah,
0: well, and then you've got the director character uh, Schubert, who is played by adrian brody and he is just like totally removed from the process he's like having an affair he's like in the middle of a divorce he's like sleeping on the stage not really providing any direction (laughs) and i just thought that was like such a like a great just contrast to like wes anderson the uh the person who is in like very very like minute control or at least acute control of of everything Mm -hmm. and just like the story within the story is like is successful because the the folks who made it are are creating it in a complete opposite fashion Mm -hmm. i don't i don't know if that was like just actually that pointed self criticism or not
1: So you're actually pointing to a a funny, it was just like a text I sent in jest, but now like it was something that's like when I said it, it's like, I kind of got it, but I had no, I literally say, I will not elaborate on this, but this is how I feel. Uh, But you're kind of filling in the gaps. Like this is kind of his eight and a half for, for like that reason where it's like kind of Wes Anderson reckoning with Wes Anderson and Wes Anderson as a director and what that means. And like, How he can even interact with, you know, there's just like the guy, Wes Anderson, is just, you know, just like us, just like uh, walking around being a person. And there's this uh, there's this like symbolic figure that is the director, Wes Anderson, and they are two different things that play off each other. And it's like him kind of exploring that within this film uh, in similar ways that eight and a half was doing. Yeah,
0: I I do wonder how. Like how intentionally he was kind of self-criticizing or self-deconstructing in that way.
1: Yeah, I would um, say criticize. I would say deconstruct.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it seems like criticism from my point of view of not liking many of his other <laughs> movies. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's it's fairly clear that he was self-deconstructing with this, um, and I, I think I appreciate it. And and actually the exact opposite of what the online discourse has been i think that this movie might actually like make me reassess most of his other movies
1: mm. yeah yeah no um i totally see that oh so i did some some uh, googling and the exact line is you can't wake up if you don't fall asleep so here for you live the good folks that are listening to this we are going to try to make sense of this line God. If you don't fall asleep
0: You can't fall in love And land on
1: your feet You won't smell the roses If you never plant a seed And you can't wake up If you don't fall asleep My interpretation, when I was watching it, like just right there at the moment, like wasn't didn't really reflect on it too hard. It was just like they were, just, you know, all these people in black and white were staring at the screen, yelling or uh, chanting at me. You can't wake up if you don't fall asleep. Um, I saw it as like falling asleep to me. Well, you know, it it, it indicates you know a symbology of like dreaming of being uh, out of consciousness or being more in touch with your unconscious. When you're when you're yeah. awake, you're like that's your more rational mind. You're more present you're more uh worrying about like what what's concrete and right in front of you lack lack of control equals greater greater clarity so i feel like in order like you have to sleep you have to kind of surrender yourself to being out of control to being uh, to understanding that you don't have you, you ultimately don't have full say on what the the end result of the thing that you're trying to create, especially in like a collaborative art form like this, and to try and grip control like that is going to only hurt the end result of what you're trying to ultimately express, uh, which mean, is you know the awake side, the the side where you're conscious and you're communicating and you're expressing yeah. things to people. If you don't have that side that's willing to fully, uh, surrender yourself. You, you don't get the ability to be in control. Really. It's kind of a weird paradox that you sit in. (laughs) I mean, and that,
0: that's the type of art that I'm usually drawn to and, uh, why I think theater is so immediate and so electrifying both as a, a creator and an audience member. But this is also coming from a person whose utter precision has carved out a huge swath of film history for himself. Like his fans love that precision and that singular vision and, uh, and like just like doing anything that like at all criticizes that or, or, or if, if not criticizing at least questions, it is pretty radical feeling if that was his intention.
1: Right. I think, um, what's funny is just even on the quick Google, um, one of the top things is Maya Hawk uh, commenting on it. And it's clear that like, he didn't tell them what that meant. Like, she's just interpreting it freely. What what she thinks where she says, like, uh, I think it means if you don't take time to rest and to let go, you'll never really have awareness of what's happening in the world around you, where it's like, that's, that's just her personal interpretation. So I, I don't know if Wes Anderson even really knows what that means. He just maybe Roman Coppola knows. <laughs> perhaps yeah that could be his line who knows or
0: if, oh. if anyone knows it's it's like jason schwartzman and and scarlett johansson <laughs>
1: um but yeah I, I don't know it's like especially because that was that scene was shortly thereafter the the balcony scene and then it, it's right after you know the scene where you're just seeing a another writer like quote-unquote auteur creative like essentially uh resting control of his creation to strangers and just letting them take it and run with it and seeing where it goes. Well, which is the role
0: of the playwright, usually, in like the traditional setup of, you know, the playwright gives it over to the director, the director gives it over to the actors, then the actors give it over to the audience. And there's a chain of command there. That process typically exists far less in cinema. And I mean, mm-hmm. and I, I, and clearly here, like it also, it also doesn't exist because even if like Wes Anderson is deconstructing these things intentionally, he's doing it. It's all his intention. And it's, it'll, it all, it its all still
1: like, ironically, it all, it is all still very precise and very right. clean. Yeah. That's, that's the ultimate irony behind it is like, it's talking about this letting go of control, but it's like, uh, he might be saying that, but he's still firmly, and almost in a uh, godlike manner tightly in control of what you are seeing and experiencing you know i think here just the content was such that i i'm okay with it and i really liked it i think he's aware of it like it's almost uh, well yeah, of course he is like <laughs> the, yeah, he's the a, little bit obviously of, a f- brilliant uh, the flex a little bit of uh you know theater history that i have like it felt like brecht in a way you brought up Brecht with uh
0: with Bose Afraid, and I, I think the like kind of the, the like the theater within the movie scene in Bo's, Bo's Afraid actually probably shares a lot in common with this. Yeah, may- maybe less like audience confrontational than your typical kind of like Brechtian theater, but uh, as far as like a semi modern voice in with the in these types of questions, like Brecht is usually who comes to mind.
1: So Wes Anderson always gets put in this realm of and you you were kind of alluding to it to a points with um, you know, the actors are uh kind of purposely wooden, it's kind of purposely arm's length. There's there's always this um just pervasive coat of irony that's over everything. Yeah. Um and like Wes Anderson's general use of irony, and I think like, and I think I forget which movie we were talking about when I won this rant where it's like, this isn't like postmodern irony it's something that goes beyond it because it's using irony to like flesh out like this real sincere like human ache that's going on that then kind of like the only way out of irony is through it and he seems to be employing that in this that 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 may be the case but i think that if you
0: did strip away the you know all of the you know the 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 metaverse (laughs) part of the movie like if you were to strip away the like If you were only left with the play within the play, if you're only left with Asteroid City, you know, in quotes itself, it would still it would still be that. And I would I would strongly dislike it. And I wouldn't feel like it actually does transcend the irony. I feel like it would just be irony.
1: Well, right. That's That's my point. That's
0: that's how I felt about almost all of his other movies.
1: Yeah. So Asteroid City in and of itself um, is just like it's just a Wes Anderson movie, just straight up, just, you know, he could have. I don't know, add a few more scenes here and there and done a full runtime and call it Asteroid City in and of itself, its own self-contained film. And that just would have been a fine Wes Anderson film. And it would have had that sense of irony that we're talking about. But he he kind of, he almost doubles down on it by like breaking the fourth wall and going into, you know, what's behind it and and doing meta commentary around it, which is like a very postmodern trick. But like it almost he's using it all in the the service of something that really isn't a postmodern ethos, which is to get at really sincere, gooey human feelings.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's and the irony that it's like, you know, the actors who are like, you know, typically known as the, the most artificial people on the planet. Uh, are the ones that kind of get at it, but like the characters who are kind of were written, you know, with the playwrights actual ethos or I guess pathos in this, this case uh, like are still wooden. <laughs> right. Like, like you still have like Jason Schwartzman, like unable to like express anything about his dead wife
1: other than like monotone and flirting with the the hot actress. I mean, can you blame him? Scarlett Johansson walks around and you're just be like, oh, no, I'm in mourning. Sorry, Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. My wife is prettier. <laughs> <laughs> that is on recording. If she ever asks, we can cite this. Yeah, exactly. Oh, my My girlfriend's prettier, too, by the way. Yeah, and both alive.
0: Cha-ching! <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and real, not fictional characters. Yeah, not a fictional character like Scarlett Johansson. Oh, that is true. Johansson <laughs> is real, to my knowledge. I've never seen her in real life. Um, I'm pretty sure. Let Let's stop kind of beating the dead horse of the the mm. um, the the framing device, and let's talk about
0: Asteroid City itself, and, hmm. and specifically retrofuturism. Dan, I'd love to just put pose this question to you, and okay. uh, let you know let let the the thoughts just run. So. Why do we like to look back on past generations' vision of the future and what didn't happen?
1: So, mild history lesson here, where uh, in a lot of the 20th century, um, especially before World War II, it still happened after World War II. Of course, there's a lot of uh, cynicism about tech after World War II, after the horrors of all that. But generally, the opinion of technology, especially after the Industrial Revolution, Is that technology is going to liberate us? It's going to make the workday shorter. Like, we're all going to become, we're going to be able to be more efficient and create all the human, like, all the necessities for mankind. And, like, if you read back to, like, uh, you know, political theorists at the time and social commentators at the time, they're really predicting that, like, by the time 2023, that, like, mankind would not be working because the, the Uber marionettes would be. Yeah, because like machines would be doing all the basic things, and the sad thing is they're right. We yeah. actually, we actually um, outpaced uh, the the level of production that they predicted that we would be able to do. I mean, it's you know it's, it's the, the the sad cliche nowadays where it's like the average American worker has never been more productive ever in all of history, but we get uh, we've never be, uh, been but we're working more than we ever have. And for less than on top of that, even just going more into the artistic side, it was the the ideas of the grand things that that uh, Asteroid City points out. It's like all the beautiful new technologies that we can create. Like, uh, you know, if you look at retrofuturism, I'm thinking of the Jetsons in particular is a great example of this, where it's like you got your flying cars and your hovercrafts and your teleportation and and like food would just immediately pop up out of nowhere. And like everything would just be magically created by the wonderful technology and now uh you know we we all kind of grew up on this sort of utopian futurism uh but now i mean let's just look at um media and everything that's created in the last i don't know let's just say the last 20 years children uh, of Men no longer looks cool whenever you have whenever you see media that's designed to make something uh pushed out in the future now it's black mirror now children of men now it's um the uh, hunger us. games um so our, our vision of the future nowadays is much bleaker and both of those things where uh, the retrofuturism and the, uh, the futuristic optimism of the 20th century and the, the, the sincere pessimism of the 21st century for the future reflects an underlying uh, attitude about what technology has done. And it's this great book uh, by David Graeber. Oh no, is it? I think it's Utopia of Rules. No, that's the wrong one. It's one of the, one of the David Graeber books. Um, if someone knows, please yell at me about it. But it's basically it's this idea of canceled futures, where th- there's a whole study of how we saw the future uh, through throughout the past, and at this time, like we were very optimistic about it. We 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 thought that everything would uh, you know just get better. And it would serve us, the people. It would make our lives easier. Like in this movie, you see it. Like we got like uh jet packs and we got like uh this weird particle ray that can just blast things out. We can you can put that, you know, you the the girl you have a crush on, you can you can signal that to her by uh hologramming it onto the moon all in the fifties, which is funny because <laughs> all these things it has it has, a, it has uh advertising applications. Well, yeah, that's
0: true too. Um and no, like, no, that's a line from the movie that got like I was the only one in the theater that laughed for some
1: reason. Oh, it was so funny. Um, that's another bit is like, th- I think just straight up, this is the funniest movie he's made. I laughed out loud the most. Yeah. Yeah. And and to be fair, even though I've,
0: I've said a few times that I haven't liked many of his other movies, pretty much every single one is maybe
1: laugh consistently, but like this one the most. Yeah. And what's really like, and I think it really adds to, so Wes Anderson's also known for like as sweet as his movies are, they're always pretty melancholy too. They're a little sad. Um And that was where I thought the the main thrust of like this kind of mourning for a future that just won't exist anymore. Because keep in mind, what Asteroid City is set in like what the mid fifties, maybe yep. give or take. The future that you're seeing all these kids, and I mean, boy, let's let's date the the children. They were probably born nineteen forty five to nineteen forty, give or take. So now they're at the like in twenty yeah, is twenty. There, is, there is, is there a name for that
0: generation? <laughs>
1: uh i don't know some some ideas booming around in my head but i'm not sure but these people are now all in their 80s or towards the end of their life and like now that i'm thinking about it like there has to be a profound disappointment for being someone born in the middle of the 20th century seeing that like all of this hope for the future like this is what they got this is this is the result of all that imagination and all this optimism is like now we have uh robots are now creating art while human beings are the ones stuck in the the fucking like sales minds and like creating stupid marketing campaigns while the tv shows on netflix that you're uh, that you have to watch are now made by ai for ai about ai black mirror baby yeah i mean so and okay as i'm saying it Jared I'll let you respond to it while I look it up like uh David Graeber is an author that spoke about this uh at length about like just that deep crushing disappointment of growing up in a world where um I mean even think of like Star Wars or uh that's a great yeah. example too of like that technology is is going to be great it's going to be this fantasy it's going to be this adventure for everyone and it's like that's well, just not how that turned out. Star Wars me. is a Star Wars is a terrible
0: example cuz Star Wars is like this swashbuckling western in space that's about an absolutely fucking horrifying well past but but still like like the the version of like technological advancement and like what like like, like you know what sentient beings have become in its wake is
1: horrific in Star Wars. Well, true. I guess I'm more saying it's like but there's still like this sense of romanticism and adventure yeah, and yeah. and all that stuff it's like where where's the adventure in 2023 where's where's this romantic yeah. swashbuckling anymore like it's what on the metaverse oh, cuz i got spurs that jingle jangle jingle jingle jangle as i go riding merrily along
0: they sing oh ain't you glad you're single Jingle,
1: jangle and that song it's so very far from wrong Jingle, oh, lily bell. oh lily bell oh lily bell oh lily bell though i may have done some fooling this is why i
0: never it's always like really amusing that this sort of like optimistic futurism is always tempered by like the anxieties around, you know, the nuclear, impending nuclear holocaust. Not always, but there's often this like, you know, there's a big silver cloud with a, with a do, a lining around it of doom of like, yeah, but like, we'll probably just vaporize each other anyway. <laughs> yeah. Like, that you see is it in this movie. That, like- you see it in this movie. Um, this movie reminds me more than a little bit of fallout. Okay. So, uh, particularly fallout. New Vegas has the exact same sort of irony streak where, uh, so in the world of fallout, um, the, t- the, the, timelines are like pretty messed up in my head, but basically the nuclear end of the world, you know, Russia and China and the U S just all nuking each other all at once happened. Uh, while, humanity was basically going through like a like a 1950s aesthetic revival in like the 23rd century or something mm-hmm. and uh all the games are like this sort of time capsule of like what if uh the post apocalypse like what if what basically what if culture stopped stopped uh progressing in the 50s but you know it's also you know the future where everything's a nuclear wasteland so like mm-hmm. the whole the whole joke is just this juxtaposition of like 1950s optimism but you know h- half of the population are like irradiated ghouls and the other half are like cannibals <laughs> well this kind of goes but in... there's but they're still obsessed with like
1: like Elvis and uh oh yeah cuz uh, culture literally stopped it's yeah. ossified at this point um yeah and this goes into actually it's uh shit no it's not David Graeber, it's Mark Fisher that actually riffs off David Graeber and it's it's from the movie uh, Children of Men And uh, fallout. Actually, your discussion of fallout uh, exactly applies to this, and it's it's sort of this interesting couching within. I promise we're still talking about Asteroid City. Um, That so within Asteroid City, you're seeing these like alternate, not alternatives, but like there's this open imagination of what could be. It's like so wide, it's so vast. There's so much that we could become. Yeah, and it's Um, no, it's no uh it's no accident that the purveyors of those ideals are children in the movie Mm -hmm. and and it's also no accident that the uh the people that are trying to get their hands on this and trying to direct it is the military (laughs) yeah Um, yeah whose scientists
0: are 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 nitwits like tilda swinton (laughs) is in the movie and in real
1: life um yeah uh yeah long uh, mild cancellation of tilda swinton but did i not I, mention tilda swinton when i was when i was taking a big breath so. listing um, off the actors in this movie she currently sits i know there's good reasons to dislike tilda swinton right now but she sits as my problematic fave i will not drop her no listen she is a incredible actor
0: like absolutely <laughs> just like a a singular talent, a, a chameleon, and uh, there's nothing she can't do. You know, if, if it wasn't for Kate Blanchett, you know Tilda Swinton would be on top of the world. But Kate Blanchett just happens to be similar, but better. And huh? uh, but uh, Tilda Swinton sucks, like as a person. Anyway, sorry, I just totally derailed because I forgot how much I dislike Tilda Swinton, and she plays a fucking doofus in this movie, and she does huh? it so naturally. <laughs>
1: but anyways um so with uh you know this just like open imagination this like this wonderful yeah like childlike uh uh, understanding of what the future could be like they're sort of us watching this in 2023 and wes anderson making it you know probably in 2022 but still like uh, about the same time there's sort of this like deep sadness and mourning that comes through it because then you watch things i think are much more reflective of our attitude like children of men and i think like if we were to predict what 20 years from now would look like it's not going to look like what asteroid city is envisioning it's going to be children of men and it's um it's this idea that uh mark fisher uh puts forward is that like we can't imagine an alternative path than the one that we are barreling down right now and it's Horrible. It's only dystopian. Like it's Hunger Games. It's children of men. It's uh I'm trying to think of other examples of like any movie set in the future. It's just children of men is so perfect. Maybe Blade Runner. Blade yeah, R- maybe Blade Runner, Blade, uh, Blade yeah, Runner yeah. might cyberpunk be a sort of happy. Yeah, Cyberpunk might be a sort of happy medium. No, actually, Cyber he actually specifically cites Cyberpunk where it's like, we can only imagine a future where like our current uh you know just current systems of especially capitalism in particular like only run to their logical conclusions and destroy humanity and the planet like we're just incapable of imagining outside of that like what, what's the last uh book or movie or or piece of media that has like boldly uh, tr- like a popular one. There's a couple of like niche things that I've engaged with before uh, that tried to do this, but like that b- try to boldly imagine an alternative future where we don't just eat ourselves alive. You got anyways, me. folks, thanks for tuning in to uh, concessions. Have a great night. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, they're, they're probably out there, but, uh, yeah, n- nothing really
0: comes to mind as as uh, anything you know real substantive. Well, wow, that is uh, maybe why I like Asteroid City because at least it like dances around with a uh, uh, you know uh, uh, an optimism for the future.
1: Okay, actually, thank you for that. You're pulling me back out of the abyss. Um, <laughs> that's what I really like about Asteroid City where it is very honest about that. Um, so the the worst thing I hate is just like, uh, you know, this like very cloying uh, optimism that's like, everything's going to be okay, guys, no matter what, yay. Um, but like Asteroid City in like a very gentle way dabbles in what I'm talking about. Just it's like, you know, this, this mourning for these futures that we no longer have access to, that we no longer can possibly imagine anymore. But it also like, it says like, yeah, those are gone. Those or or effectively, like we we've lost the ability to collectively imagine that, but we can still collectively imagine, we can still create and we can still make things in directions that we're not even sure yet. But we have to like there, there's like this kind of strange sense of like we need to build communities, we need to build this sense of creative solidarity with the people around us and kind of just improv. Like we don't know what the next thing's gonna be, but to to put up barriers around like no, this is the only track that we can go down is the worst thing that we can do. And I think Asteroid City understands it. it's like we don't know what the point of all this shit is, but we know that we gotta keep trying. Yes. Well, there you we go. I brought it us back.
0: It, sorry, everyone. But it also takes place in the 1950s. But
1: <laughs> but it's also <laughs> in West sorry. Air so in 2023 looking at the 1950s.
0: So I thought of one movie that does have like a kind of like some futuristic optimism also uh, probably not accidentally. It's all from the point of view of a child, but uh, have you seen the, I think it's, I think it's Disney that made it. Uh, it's based on a comic book, big hero six. No, I actually missed that one. That's definitely about like, it definitely stares capitalism right in the face, but like the main character is like a, a little boy who's like scientific mind sort of, overcomes oh, the societal challenges uh but you know i'll obviously mm-hmm. take that with a grain of salt uh and uh you know keep in mind who's delivering the message wait you Disney. want one that
1: actually totally works is her yeah oh gee you okay everything yeah my, <laughs> uh this is live podcasting folks uh my microphone was sitting on my desk it just slid off and hit me in the wiener yeah i'd love to hear more because to
0: I, the first thing that comes to mind to me is that her is uh pretty sad in what it what kind of in that it's it's our very near future with like the way that ai technology is going and uh you know how just personal relationships right may yeah basically no, it's may like become it's, obsolete soon
1: yeah it's like it's commodifying love but so why is it optimist optimistic for you right well uh full disclosure hurt is sincerely uh, maybe one of my top three favorite movies ever. Like it it, it sits in my bones and it will not get out uh, whether I like it or not. Um, it's actually quite similar to children of men in that way where it's like, you know, it's a, it's the near future. Both of them are set. Like, I forget what it's called. There, there's a term for it where it's like, it's set like just outside of the frame of today. And um, in both of them, like the technology isn't wildly like futuristic or anything. It's just like a little bit more advanced than what we're used to now. It's just taking the thread of what's going on now and just kind of pushing it about five or ten years later, and and yeah, you're right. Where it's like there's this really uncomfortable feeling about like this sort of marketization of of love of intimacy, where you know the the main character, um, oh something Trombley. Why do I know his last name but not his first name? Probably because Trombley is a funny last name. Um. <laughs> But, um, you know, he writes letters, love letters, for other people, for a living. And that's like, you know, if you think about it on space, that's gross. And, you know, he falls in love with an AI. What? Coincidentally, it's Scarlett Johansson. She just keeps popping up in this kind of stuff. I mean, even um, her voice. Yeah. I mean, my wife has a nicer voice,
0: but, like, her voice is pretty nice.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it ultimately lands on, like, yeah, like, you know, technology is going to advance, it's going to interrupt how we interact with one another. But like, there are just some parts of the human experience. And maybe this is just, you know, Spike Jones being optimistic or being a softy or something like that. But there are just parts of the human experience that just cannot be put on a map cannot be quantified cannot be marketized cannot be commodified. And it just like it, it really by almost uh, stripping away the parts that can be commodified and showing that like very soft dystopia. I would call this a very soft, gentle dystopia. Um it, it highlights the bits that like are so core to the human experience that I just don't see how some fucking creep in Silicon Valley can get their hands on in order to make more money out of us. We'll see. We're getting close to it. Yeah, well, they're working we're, on it. We're, it. About, we're about to kind of reach that fork in the road
0: where we're going to find out uh, you know, hey, speaking of Spike Jones, we didn't we didn't talk about him last last time on on the Babylon episode. Oh yeah, <laughs> he was fucking hilarious with his brief screen time in that movie.
1: Ah, oh, so fun.
0: The Babylon, yeah, check out the Babylon episode. He was doing like his best Werner Herzog, but uh, I'm sure there was like some some German directors that crossed over into Hollywood during like the silent era as well. But to me, like just like a uh uh, like a crotchety german director just just as synonymous with herzog Mm -hmm. but uh i'm sure that there was like a probably a better example of like who he was actually supposed to be oh yeah someone
1: someone who really really knows their film history probably like oh you idiots it's this guy it's baron von schliepenstein yeah i mean for
0: how many just like monumental german directors there were during that time i
1: I can't think of one that was actually was making movies in hollywood yeah, and there was a lot of I mean, well, the 20s not quite yet, but like there's a lot of crossover of a lot of like the German expressionists and the Weimar German uh directors got the fuck out uh in the middle of the 20th
0: century. Right, right, but but in like 1926. Yeah, that yeah. might be too early at this point. Well, I mean, I it could
1: just be, you know, uh like foreign directors even now. Like they come to Hollywood because that's where uh that's where the magic's made, baby. Like another uh another director from the show, Nicholas Vinding Reffen. Uh, you know, I want to like,
0: I want to kind of, uh, you know, Germanicize his, his name, but when he pronounces it, he, he basically says winding.
1: Well, I I guess that's the same with mine where my last name is L U D W I G. Ludwig. Yeah. Uh, my dad's from Ohio. Okay. I'm Ludwig. Wow.
0: (laughs) But, but any, but, oh, but you know, I, you pointed this out. When we were talking about Valhalla Rising, is that Reffen was raised in the US?
1: That's true. Yeah, it's not a fair example.
0: So maybe maybe folks in Denmark w- would say like Vindig, but he's like like Nicholas Winding Reffen. Like, Vin- like, like that's right. a, like that's his snappy nickname that he got in college. Like he's the guy that's always winding people up. <laughs> like, <laughs> but uh uh we are so off topic. <laughs> also, I gotta right I'm out of things to talk about with asteroid city other than,
1: uh, it's good.
0: I I recommend uh, it.
1: Let's do like just quick and quick and easy. Uh, favorite, like single scene moment thing about asteroid city.
0: Um, no, I really like the balcony scene. I don't want to steal your thunder on that. But, uh, (laughs) um, the other part that I liked is just like the, the lunacy that happens when, um, when basically like the, the civilians decide to revolt and like leave and everyone's like using the, uh, inventions like you see like oh yeah uh, you see like behind the set because they, they're they two-dimensional sets like then they're supposed to be in the world of the film because it's actually a play Um but you like see like the the kid on the uh on, with the jetpack sort of flying around like behind the yeah. set and uh it's just like there's this moment of chaos like that that whole thing is hilarious but also the moment that uh alien first shows up and we we get like this brief stop motion uh, section of the movie where the alien shows up and like, he's sort of, I don't know, like for some reason he thinks that he can't be seen if he's like standing still. So like, (laughs) he's like kind of acting like he's sneaking, but he's like maintaining eye contact with everyone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, uh, he like gets the asteroid and kind of like poses for the picture. Like Jason Schwarzman goes to like, take the picture and like, the alien understands and sort of poses a little bit and just kind of like cheeses for the camera.
1: Oh, so uh, funny.
0: And the alien is played by Jeff Goldblum in that is, the the alien doesn't speak, but like when you see behind the scenes in the movie, the actor who's playing the alien is Jeff Goldblum sitting there. He has like one line. He's getting his makeup done. But also, even within the stop motion, the alien's eyes are played by Jeff Goldblum. And he fucking nails it because his, his eyes are hilarious in that like
1: 15 seconds where he's choosing for the camera. I mean, that that just it, it goes to show when whenever you see, you know, someone who's incredible at something or like, I don't know, like Michael Jordan makes you think that you can play basketball. Jeff Goldblum almost gave me the opposite example. It's like his eyeballs just conveyed more meaning than my entire body could do. Right. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, he's he's incomparable. Oh, for real. Um. Well, so it, other than the balcony scene, what well, so I'll just leave for people who, if you've seen it, you know the balcony scene. I don't need to go on about it. If you haven't seen it, I want to keep that a nice little treasure for you. The uh, Jeffrey Wright speech towards the beginning, when there's like you know there's all the microphone, he's like going up and up and up. It's just like he starts it, and then I realize like, oh hell yeah, we're about to have a great. Fucking monologue, and oh, he fucking kills it. Yeah. Where he like goes through like his life story and stuff, and how he got here, and all that good jazz. Oh yeah, oh, it's so good. It's just like I don't know. It's just like classic movie making, where or not even movie making, just storytelling. Where it's like it's just so clear. It's like, hey kids, it's time for a really well executed, wonderfully written monologue. You ready? It's like, yeah, totally. Let's yeah. do it. Mm-hmm. We could,
0: we could talk at length about favorite monologues just in, in cinema. (laughs) Um, But we need to save that for another time because I do believe we are out of time tonight. The movie that I'm going to recommend that if you like asteroid city, uh, you know, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to go super deep, but basically if you want to see the best movie about creating a play, it is Birdman just from a, uh, the perspective of what it actually feels feels like to act in a play or to be involved in rehearsal just uh, the the dream state that you sort of get in for being in the theater for too long the weird little accidents that happen how everything feels like it's running together just the nightmare scenario of having to act in a play and just how it seems to go against like most human beings survival instinct is present in birdman and birdman is also a you know not to not to say anything directly at Damien Chazelle but like birdman yeah. is a one of the few movies of modern times that really feels like jazz and like understands jazz and uses Ooh. jazz effectively um yeah birdman's the only the only one i can think of in the last like 10 15 years that uses
1: jazz effectively
0: yeah i'll, t- I'll tie that back to to both movies that we talked about this week
1: well um if you want another movie about the theater experience, which, you know, as the one who has no theater experience, let me tell you that this is the better one. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's, ow. Uh once again, live <laughs> podcasting. <laughs> it's a live experience, folks. That's what you pay for. That's what you pay the good money for your podcasting app for uh my my favorite uh, a movie that I would recommend that's based on this that it, it kind of does what uh asteroid titty's doing where it's like you have the experience of creating art of creating collaborative art especially within theater but then you also have like this deep sincere emotional core of like uh what are what like what are people when they're in the theater when like artists or you know just a uh, more broadly just people but like artists are definitely seeking this in a more uh protracted way like what what are you looking for in these emotional experiences and these expressions and it's a it's a movie that came out about a year or so ago called drive my car which is i'm i was already fully on board to love it because full disclosure it's a it's a short or it's based off a short story by Haruki murakami who just full stop is probably my very favorite author. I've written or I've read everything that he's ever written, and this film deals with a lot of similar themes. Uh, Asteroid City is looking at when it comes to the relationship between like the creator and the creation, uh, the way that communication works within uh, within art, and then how it, like, and you know, how well people are good at, like, uh, for instance, like within, within a like a play like people are very are, are very uh, savvy about expressing themselves well the, how do they take that into their real life and their ever into the everyday mundanity of just having and holding regular human relationships and the the undramatic nature of that and and how yeah basically how you cope from day to day yeah. and and how that like that translates so one of the very interesting things about it it's one of the uh, it's in the the short story too, as well as a play, where it's like uh, the play itself. They they're pulling people from across the world who speak different languages, and they're make they're making it so that everyone is speaking their native tongue. No one's speaking the same language in this play. It's a checkoff play. It's a it's a classic play, um, and it's it's just highlighting like this this uh, disconnect between the way that you feel, the way that your thoughts are going on, the way that you're experiencing, and the way that you express it when you finally come out. And, and try and uh you know communicate that to other people and like these these subtle little missteps in like how to reconcile that gap and i think asteroid city also does that very well so yeah drive my car wonderful please watch it one of the best things i watched that year
0: hell yeah let's add it to the list man because i I've, I've wanted to watch drive my car ever since i i missed it at sif a couple of years ago and uh it didn't win but it was it competed for the palm D'Or that year and i think, I think it was got also nominated
1: yeah it was palm Dor. i think it got nominated also for well, but it, but, it, 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 but it won international feature film at the oscars i know that much and justifiably so um actually fun little uh also inside baseball is uh the book or the collection that that story is in the short story was the last thing that i ever had to read by murakami where now i've read everything by him and that was the very last piece i read it while i was visiting jared um, I was staying at his home. Uh, he was busy, so I spent a day in the great town of Seattle, picked up the, the short story collection, Men Without Women, and read it on my own a few weeks ago, and then went back and hung out with Jared and his nice family some more, and his wife, who has a voice better than Scarlett Johansson. Can confirm. Absolutely, 100%. <laughs> I, would, I would fall
0: in love with an AI voice version of my wife, for sure. <laughs>